It takes more than creating a GUI interface using Visual Basic to track the killer's IP address to be a great software engineer. This is episode 203 of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. I'm your host, Dave Smith. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice show where we answer your non-technical questions about the technical field of software development. And I guess talk about like old memes. Did you ever watch CSI? <laughs> I knew this was a reference to some pop culture thing, but I didn't know what it was. I don't know why this became a meme because it's actually not like too weird. Like the, in terms of <laughs> it's tech, not too, yes, like it techno is. babble that makes no sense. This actually kind of makes sense, but like each individual word makes sense. But when you put them all together, it's like what? <laughs> Someone so yeah, there's a CSI quote where somebody says this, and then somebody actually made the GUI interface in Visual Basic to track the killer's <laughs> IP address and like posted the code on GitHub or something. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I don't I don't know why this is famous cuz there's so much more egregious like tech offenses than this which is all real things pretty much except I, the killer part. <laughs> I think this one is famous because they obviously went to some work to find actual words like visual basic and GUI and IP address, but then when yeah. they strung them together it was just like, ugh, you should have just asked someone if this makes sense. So here's where you put the button that says track killer <laughs> and then it just finds them. <laughs> the killer. It just knows. Yeah. Anyways, that's not what this show is about. Dave, do you want to talk about our fantastic patrons? Yes, thank you to everyone who is contributing on Patreon at the level that gets them a weekly shout out. They are Vinlock, Braden Keynes, Chris Hogan, Dennis Bogdanov, Evgeny Slatkowski, John Grant, Luis Santos, Luke Bayless, Nick Hathaway, Nick Kantar, Philippe John. Basile, The Agile Ventures Charity, Sean, Sonic the Hedgehog, Stanley Tactical Radio, Stephen Armand Lee, Taras Haruk, Maple Syrup, Travis, and Zach Grannon. If you would like to contribute to the show and gain access to our ultra-secret, yet not secret at all, Slack community, you can go to <laughs> softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon. The password is, yeah, it's pretty insecure. It's it's any dollar amount. That's the password. <laughs> any integer will gain access to the secret Slack community. <laughs> Yeah, it's great though. It's it's full of nice people who help each other out a lot. I'm impressed by how thoughtful some of the discussions are in there. All of the discussions. I don't mean to imply. <laughs> yes, I mean <laughs> they're except, all thoughtful, except for some of those really unthoughtful discussions. <laughs> no, they're great. <laughs> yeah, they are. I learn. Should I read our first question? Yes, go for it. Okay, this is from a listener named Alex. I am worried it is only a matter of time before the growing pandemic impacts the job market. I work for a young startup, and as of yet, I am gainfully employed. But if this goes on as long as some folks say it will, I'm just not sure. I've heard that there was a software job market crash after the dot-com boom. What was that like? What's the best thing to do if you get laid off in a market downturn? Wait it out, look for software jobs, switch industries temporarily. I guess for some context, if you're listening to this long afterwards, this is during the coronavirus pandemic. I guess we can't be... We can't have any form of media and not mention it somehow. <laughs> That's true. It's got to touch every part of our lives, even yes. your software podcast. That's right. <laughs> huh. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I don't want to focus too much on the coronavirus part because I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but I think this is broadly applicable. Yeah. What? Yes, you are. You are a computer scientist. Yeah, that's true and and that does give me the power to speculate wildly on every <laughs> field besides my own because of intellectual hubris that's right listen i can i know how system calls work so therefore <laughs> epidemiology is way easier and i can just sit down and reason through it from first principles <laughs> so straightforward yeah 
anyways but i think this is broadly applicable because there will always be downturns of some form or another there's one right now but there will be one in the future probably no i I heard this was the last one oh well (laughs) that means it's real bad it's the last one (laughs) i can tell you my plan if i need to deal with an apocalypse scenario my plan is to go around and ask the warlords if they need websites built or like servers maintained do they need me to manage a product team for them Kind of help iterate quickly and test out some ideas and build up their CI, CD pipeline. It's hard to manage your like skull inventory, I guess. (laughs) So you probably need software to do that. (laughs) Oh man, where do you get these ideas? I don't know. This is from me wondering like, what would I do if zombies came alive? Because there are people who have, I mean, if you're a contractor, like a a, a, a house building contractor, that like you could you could be useful, you know, you could yeah. build fortifications, build houses inside those fortifications. Mm-hmm. But what would I do? Like I would be bad manual labor, I think, and, and I'd whine. <laughs> I'd be like, "Where's my free catered lunch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my hands are soft. I have blisters. Can I can I get a standing desk to?" Uh... <laughs> Is there a sitting shovel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm going to sit on this yoga ball while I dig (laughs) trenches to put the bodies in because it's better for my back. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes, we are. We're the first ones with our backs against the wall when the revolution comes. Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like one of the dangers of being so highly specialized is if the circumstances that make those specialties useful go away, then what do you do? Not only specialized, but completely spoiled. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Specialized in spoiling myself. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. I uh, I do worry about that. So I think the end of this conversation is me turning into a prepper. <laughs> but let's assume it's not quite that bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Dave? Well, why don't we talk about what, what we do know, which is in past downturns, what it looked like. And sure. I, you know, I think everyone has this moment where they realize that they're getting old. When they say something mm-hmm. to someone who they thought was their peer, maybe even their same age, and that peer just looks back, and it's like a historical reference that was part of your life, and that peer yeah. just looks back at you like cross-eyed, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like when you mention the year 1999, <laughs> and then you realize there are grown-up adults who have families who are like, I wasn't alive then. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I do yeah. remember in, I think it was 2014 or 15, I... Uh, had a coworker and I was just chatting with them about the dot com crash and they just hadn't heard of it. And I was huh. like, wait, you how what? And then I was like, okay, well it was like fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago. Okay. And you are twenty eight. <laughs> so yeah, you were in middle school. Yeah. Of course you didn't hear about it. You didn't care about that. And our, the, the funny thing was he came back to me and he was like, Oh yeah, but that just affected tech, right? It's not like it's not like the economy changed or anything and i was like well why don't you go look at a stock chart and you'll see there was a pretty big crash anyway so that was my moment when i realized i was getting old and the industry had kind of been growing up around me and i had been you know surrounded by people who were all 10 years younger than me yeah so yeah i did live through the dot-com crash but uh, i came at it at kind of a different a little bit right on the cusp of starting my career so i graduated from college in 2003 and started my job search in early 2003. And this was about, I guess, like a year and a half or two years into the the crash. 
I don't remember the exact date that things really went, started going down, but we were pretty far into it at this point. And jobs, software jobs were hard to find. In fact, I was so nervous because the dot-com crash happened while I was in school still. So I'm, I'm going to classes and hearing all these stories of people who are graduating and getting these massive offers from big tech companies with huge signing bonuses and big perks and stuff. And I was getting really excited. I'm like, this is really cool. What a great time to be in computer science. But then about yeah. halfway through my major, all the stories started changing. In fact, I remember one story was Intel had done its annual college hiring and they had made a bunch of offers to a bunch of students, including signing bonuses. And then a month or two after they had sent all these offers out, they sent letters to all these students saying, you know what? Keep the signing bonus. Don't come to work. We don't have a job for you. Wow. Yeah, that's so that's so different because for, from my experience, because I've never known a world in which it was not easy to find a new job. Right. Just It's just this constant frothing frenzy of everyone trying to hire developers. So yeah, yeah, that is that is pretty different. It is different, and I and when I finally did graduate in two thousand three, and or, or well, I started the job hunt before I graduated, and I remember I applied to about six or seven jobs. We didn't have LinkedIn, so there wasn't just like I didn't have a backlog of recruiters who had reached out to me, you know, for a hundred different opportunities. Yeah. So I applied to six jobs. I only got calls back from two of them. One of them was really awesome. It would it would have actually been working for the open source development lab. That's what it was called at the time. This is what turned into the foundation. I think the Linux Foundation is what this got renamed to later. I would oh, have cool. actually I would have actually been writing code to help Linus Torvalds do kernel releases. Which huh. would have been really cool. I didn't yeah. get, I didn't get that job though. <laughs> think of all the fun stories you would have about being oh. yelled at by Linus oh, Torvalds. So true. If you had had that job. I know. <laughs> oh man. I might not even be a software developer today. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I that would have been amazing, especially I was such a young, what's the word, just ideological, way, way into open source at the time. You know, yeah. my computer was blessed by... You would have been working at church. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, those were good times. So, yeah, did not get a did not get that job. And I only, I ended up getting the job that I, the second callback. And when I went to apply... I interviewed, they did campus interviewing. So I showed up, did interviewing on the campus. And the interviewer told me they were interviewing 200 students from three universities to fill three positions. Yikes. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. Those numbers boggle my mind. Like think of think of your experience on the other side interviewing people. Have you ever interviewed that many people for one no. position? I mean, it feels like their process is bad if they have to invest like five hours with 200 people to hire three people. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, now, to, to be fair, the 200 people were just the first wave. And so they were like 30-minute. Oh, okay. They're like screening 200 yeah, people. exactly. So it's like 30-minute okay. interviews in a little interview pod on campus for 200 people. But still, yeah. that's like 100 hours, right? Yeah. So I got past the first wave, got invited to an on-site interview, went through that. And that was like a more of a traditional interview where I met with like four or five people sequentially. And they each asked me random weird questions. And I ended up getting the job. So there were three of us that got this job. And I was just so grateful to have any job at this time because I really had no other prospects. But it was just crazy. And and of course the pay was, you know, about thirty thousand dollars less than the rumored big tech salaries that were coming out. So very low. Yeah. So I think that's probably a natural thing that will happen is that uh, if this drags on and it turns into a, a first class downturn for software is that salaries will probably come down. And that happens slowly, I think, because they just stop going up, but cost of living goes up, you know? Anyway. Yeah. 
So that's, yeah, that was my story. And it was actually, it was so weird at the time, or the jobs were so scarce that I actually applied to grad school because I thought, you know what, I'm just going to ride this out by taking on some student loans. <laughs> I'll just spend, sure. just spend the next couple of years insulated in academia, maybe get a master's degree, and then I'll try again when hopefully the market is warmed up. So I applied to a grad school at uh, University of Virginia for the computer science master's program. And if I'm remembering this correctly, they had like 30 or 40 spots open for grad students and 900 applicants Yikes! for those spots at the time. So grad schools will probably fill up if there's a downturn. Yeah. And I didn't get in there. I did not get into UVA. I did apply to another university where I did get in, but then I got the job offer to actually start working. And at this point, I was getting pretty sick of being in school. So I decided to take the job. Hmm. So that's what it was like for me. Yeah, it's just such a different world. So different. Do you feel like it's affected how you have approached your career when you have when you started? I mean, my, yeah, I, I came on. I started my career in a time of plenty, basically, where tech was booming and continued to boom even more, basically until right now. I mean, there's been kind of some some growing cultural dissatisfaction with tech, but but yeah. that hasn't quite affected jobs that much. But I feel like, I mean, it, it would be hard not to affect jobs right now, just given how how things are. Like, do you, do you feel like it's affected how you evaluated opportunities or did your work or? or? I don't think so. I, I was so oblivious at this young age that I don't think I really appreciated the, pre the predicament that we were in at the time. And I also didn't have a lot of responsibilities, you know? So it's like, yeah, so you lose your job for, uh, maybe you can't get a job for a few months. No big deal, right? Like, yeah, I, I had low obligations. Yeah. It's like, well, I, I'll, I have $500. That should carry yeah. me through. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. So I don't think it really affected me. And I got to tell you, the hedonic treadmill is real. You know, like as soon as the industry started to pick up steam again and job opportunities started flowing like wine, I I, I adapted to that really quick. So, you know, no, I, I don't think so. Yeah, it is. It is amazing how quickly you can get used to feeling like you're important and valuable and <laughs> deserve <laughs> yeah. a lot. And yes. <laughs> turns out we're good at that. Yeah. It's so easy. Yeah. So what should our listener do if they're concerned or if they do end up getting laid off? Go, go apply to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, my generic advice is that it's probably worth being a little bit more conservative right now maybe saving a little bit more money so you can afford to not have a job for longer trying to lower your expenses so that money lasts longer maybe evaluate if you have different opportunities you're looking at kind of the the value of stability has risen in my in my mind where maybe before you would be more interested in something pretty risky and wild and mm -hmm. tense but now i mean that risk always has a downside it's just that downside isn't that bad if you can kind of like stumble out of your house and then get another job just by tripping right. in the street <laughs> yeah but if that's not true, then stability is a little more important, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great idea is having a fallback plan. And by fallback, I mean like having savings you can fall back on to sustain you for a while while you're looking. If it turns into an extended job search, it's just a fantastic idea. And and like this is a luxury a lot of people don't have, right? Like software jobs are very well paid. Yeah. And and theoretically, you should be able to. I mean, everybody's circumstances are different, so I don't know. But I think it's easier for software folks to build up savings than people in other industries because they're compensated so well. So, yeah. I mean, you should take advantage of that and, and recognize that not everybody can do that. I think you should also ask yourself, what would happen if my company laid me off tomorrow? And look at your skill set, look at your experience, look at your resume, and try to answer the question, am I appealing as a candidate on the open job market right now? Yeah. 
And that answer, you can you can use, you can take a try to take an objective look at yourself and say, what have I really contributed? Like if another employer came along and said, tell me why I should hire you, do you have anecdotes that you can share where you've made meaningful, significant contributions to a business? Because in a lean market where there are fewer jobs and plenty of people competing for them, employers are going to be, especially in that market, employers are going to be looking for people who can make a big impact and just be one person. Yeah, like a an easily measurable impact. Yes, like I've got a business, we're all struggling, it's a downturn, I need someone who's going to make a big difference. Yeah, So being point. able to demonstrate that. And, and I don't even think it's as important to say, well, I, I have experience with technology X, Y, and Z, you know, hot technology X, Y, and Z. I think it's more important to be able to say, I'm an engineer that can make a big impact on your business. Yeah. Yeah. Here is here is bad thing. Look how I made it. Good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's good. Although having said that, I do think specific technology experience can be valuable in this market because, again, employers are going to have their pick of people who already have that experience and won't have to pay a ramp up cost with them. Mm, so they can be a little bit more picky. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, whereas in the past, they might have been willing to hire a fungible engineer who can learn and grow on the job. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard. But like if also you should look at your industry, like is your industry likely to be one that is going to be impacted by the downturn? And are your skills narrowly scoped to that industry? Like, let's say you're an expert on hotel or airline travel engineering. And it's yeah. like, I'm not an expert in web technologies or generic technologies that are hot. I'm an expert in hotel bookings. It's like, well, hmm. you might want to try to broaden yourself a little bit. I think network is really important. I mean, it's always important for finding work, but I, I imagine it becomes even more important when it's harder to find jobs because I feel like there are going to be more people competing for just kind of random broad openings. And so you, you don't want to be in that group competing with all those people as much as possible. If you can work with folks that you know or that can recommend you or put in a good word for you, that's important. So oh, yeah. developing good relationships with folks and, and being willing to help them and, and be helped by them is important. I would also say that this is a great time. I mean, it's always a great time for this, but a particularly great time to make sure that you are taking your development as an engineer seriously, which means you're, you're learning new things, you're learning how to learn, you're developing new skills and you're not stagnant. I think for the last 10 years plus, it's actually very easy to just be good at one thing and not branch out and have plenty of employment opportunities anyway. And so if there's a downturn, which, you know, who knows? If there is a downturn, it's it, I think the people who have taken seriously the effort to actually develop new skills and grow are going to be the ones that benefit because, you know, they'll be the scarce commodity. Hmm. Well, this is a big, scary answer. <laughs> it's true. Time to give some hot stock tips, too. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you put all your money in. I don't know, Tesla? Now, short this one yeah. by that much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have any hot stock tips. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Bury it. Put it under your mattress in cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Maybe talk to someone that has, maybe talk to a financial person if you're interested in financial advisor, if you're interested in kind of hedging your 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 risk against downturns financially as well or you could marry a very wealthy spouse do not let them sign a prenup and then murder them just <laughs> keep keep procrastinating <laughs> tell them you'll get back to them about the prenup yeah <laughs> push really hard on the wedding date yeah, yeah. classic yeah classic I, saw, move. I saw a great murder mystery about that recently okay boy this this apocalypse really <laughs> picked brought up out the best yeah when the chips are down we really know 
what Dave will do. <laughs> I'm going all in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my plan is to be very lucky and just like have nothing bad happen. <laughs> if that doesn't work, I'll go to my uncle's house in Idaho who has a stockpile of weapons and food. I, yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yep, he said if the zombies ever attack, then we can drive over there. Okay. Did he lend you a tank so you could make the road trip? Oh, can he lend me a tank? No. Yeah, I would have to make my car, make my Subaru look very intimidating on the highway. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some like paper mache turrets. (laughs) Paper mache turrets. I love it. Dob some red paint all over it. Yeah. Big spikes and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We can't predict the future, but I, I do think it's... It's most of this stuff is great to do anyways, no matter what the market is like. It won't really hurt you. So I don't think it hurts to say like, what what would I do? And then do it right now, even if it ends up not being that bad. For what it's worth, and my predictions are worth even less than toilet paper, which actually is worth quite a lot right now. Yeah, I saw $60 (laughs) a roll somebody was scalping them for. Oh man. For what it's worth, my prediction is that this will probably not have as big of an impact on the software development industry as the dot-com bust did. I, I suspect that as a species, we have a addiction to data, technology, and engineering problems are, are just going to increase. So I don't know. I, I, think, I, think, we're, I think developers are probably going to be okay. But I do think that this golden age will eventually end, you know, and we'll become regular run-of-the-mill folks who, you know, have to struggle and strive just like others. Yeah. I'm going to predict... The opposite, so we cover our bases. I think okay, we're doomed. Good. Okay. So one of us will be right. <laughs> nice. And the other one has to leave the show. <laughs> <laughs> Should we answer our next question? Yeah, sure. This comes from a listener named Nathan, who says, I'm a technical lead on a small team. Two of my teammates are constantly annoyed with each other, and I need to know how to talk them down so we can be a better team. Let me introduce them. Alice, the names are made up. An experienced programmer who is slower to catch on, keeps dragging old arguments and old ways of thinking, works very slowly and in her own vacuum, and often comes across as difficult to work with. Alice constantly disagrees with the team on things like naming conventions and solutions to problems. In the other corner, (laughs) I love this wrestling metaphor. In the other corner, Bob, a second-year coder, eager to follow leadership but still learning when to ask for help. He takes criticism constructively, but not from Alice, because to him it sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. Alice and Bob constantly bump heads. Yesterday, Bob rewrote Alice's stored procedure because it was slow and he had some ideas with how to reduce some code. Today, it was SQL formatting. Bob's SQL is ugly, according to Alice, who wants to confront him on it. I suggested we create a style guide and to settle that argument. This kind of thing has been going on since the team was formed. My question is, what can I do? They both look to me as a leader and I don't want to take sides, but we've had this problem for nearly two years. Yikes. Wow. So first of all, we chose the names Alice and Bob because that is like the classic computer science Alice and Bob names. Yeah, their relationship has really devolved since they were trying to exchange private information with each other (laughs) securely. (laughs) Back from their glory days of cryptographic protocols. Yes. (laughs) Alice, can we just go back to the time when we did key exchanges? Yeah, I I miss when I could send you the letter a and no one would know what it was (laughs) huh so i didn't catch the small team part when i first read this it's possible Mm -hmm. the team is nathan and alice and bob (laughs) they're just like (laughs) it's like when you're out to lunch with two people that just fight and you kind of like sit there awkwardly and watch them (laughs) and eat your salad slowly 
quietly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it's if it's more than just these two folks though, then it's likely that the other people on the team are not huge fans of this behavior. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Yeah. What do you think they should do? Well, you know, we've talked about cage matches in the past. Yeah, there are they're already in corners. Yeah. Take that metaphor all the way. <laughs> Whoever wins this arm wrestling contest gets to define the SQL style guide. <laughs> or or whether there is one even. Maybe they just choose chaos and say the style guide is there is no style guide and no one can yeah. complain about SQL formatting. Or only I can complain about it because I won the arm wrestling match. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You got to exercise your powers as victor. I worked with somebody who had very, very detailed criteria for formatting that was completely unenforced by any tool. And it was there were other things too, but it just made code reviews with this person really frustrating because hmm. they cared quite a bit and nobody else cared, <laughs> but there was there was like nothing to enforce, like whatever. It's fine to have a defined format, but it wasn't defined. It was just all in this person's head, and then ah. they were they were trying to define it by like getting after people in pull requests, saying, "Hey, you're not matching this format that I think is really important." And it was just so frustrating because it prevented any conversation about like design and implementation, and it was it was all just in these little nitpicky details of match up my preferences exactly mm -hmm. my preferences which i will only reveal to you as you violate them yeah it just turned it into this power struggle where instead of saying like here's some stuff i think might work can you give me some feedback on it it turned into please appease me and meet all my <laughs> criteria otherwise i'm not letting this through yeah so that was painful i guess the point of that is i empathize with you that's that's not a fun place to be in it's not and it's even complicated further by the fact that i think the listener here is not the manager, but rather a tech lead, which means that interpersonal conflicts might feel like they're outside of your sphere of control. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you might be stepping out of bounds to go after it. I only care about technical stuff, not people stuff. All I have to yeah. do is solve these technical problems and the team will be great. <laughs> and it turns out that's not true. So, you know, I I think I would probably... Oh, man, it's tough. I, I really wish this question was from the manager because I think as a manager, you have got to put an end to this. This is just completely unacceptable behavior. I mean, these are two rational adults. These are professionals being paid. And this kind of behavior is just totally unacceptable. And as a manager, I would I think I would have to come pretty harshly on these people, come down pretty harshly on them and say, listen, I'd probably pull up and bring them both in the room and say, you two are having a conflict. It's gone on for two years. It's harming our team and you need to end it or else one or both of you is not going to be able to stay on this team. I, I, I think I would be that direct about it. Why? Because, I don't know, I just like muscling people around. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels really good to bully people. <laughs> just like abusing power. No, I mean... <laughs> I've just always wanted to say the phrase, or you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that I said it out loud in role play, it, it doesn't feel as good as I thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I mean, I, th this kind of behavior, it wrecks teams. I mean, we hear the word toxic thrown a lot around in our culture, but this is toxicity. And it, it spreads and it makes it so that when these two people are engaged in this kind of behavior, none of the other people on the team can be at their best. And so I, I think as a team, I insist. I've seen that very directly where... It's it's pretty easy for even one bad relationship on a team to just like smush the whole team. Yep. So you got to fix it. And 
I'm not as a manager, I'm not going to sit down and be like, let me, you know, tell me why you're so upset about this SQL code formatting. You know, I'm not really going to indulge in that. I'm just going to say, you got to fix this. You know, if you want to ask me specific questions about how to fix it, I'm here to help. But you're an adult, you're a professional, especially this Alice in this scenario, who's got many years of experience. I expect that person to learn grown-up people skills and how to interact with other people. And if you can't interact with someone who's two years into the into the profession, then that is a re- turns out that's a required skill <laughs> to be on our team is that you have to be yeah. able to interact with others, especially if you're more experienced. So, I mean, you said that's what you do if you were the manager, but if you're the tech lead, yeah. there's this fuzzy in between where the tech lead might not have the authority to do it, but they're still responsible for the output of the team in some way. Yep. Like, I mean, do you just try to do that anyways? No, I, I think... You don't really have the stick to, da- to dangle over people's head. It's more like yes. you're just saying, please fix it because it's hurting the team, not like, please fix it or else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think there are two approaches that I would take as a tech lead. The first one is I would partner with the manager. I would sit down and describe the problem as clearly as I can and then strategize with the manager on how to solve this problem. If it's as bad as you say, the manager is definitely aware of it and has failed to fix it over the last two years. And so they might need your help. And maybe that's what's going on. So in any case, you got to partner with the manager, figure out where the problem is. And maybe they've taken action already that you're not aware of. And you should become aware of that. Because as a tech lead, I think you really need to be, you need to be involved at a certain level with these kinds of people issues. It doesn't mean you have to do their performance reviews every year. It doesn't mean you have to do their compensation, but it does mean that when there are serious interpersonal issues on the team, you probably need to be aware and partner it up with the manager to make sure you're presenting a unified front. So you've, you've taken a pretty hard line here. The relationship has been bad for two years. What if it's the kind of thing, in my experience, the hardest situations to address are things where each individual instance is like not quite a big deal yeah but the totality of it affects things and it's hard to say like when you did this specific thing that was just totally unacceptable it's always like that felt kind of weird and i i wish it didn't happen that way but like it's not that bad but but there's just this broad pattern like how do you how do you deal with it if that's the case where it's i I mean uh, teams disagreeing about style is it is a sacred right of engineering you know like (laughs) true (laughs) that one incident by itself is not is is not like a huge problem i think but in the context of this whole relationship it could look worse what do you do if that's the case where it's it's like the weight of everything not the individual thing given that this has gone on for two years that's almost definitely what has happened here and so i think you it's probably not as clear to the parties that are participating in this toxic relationship as it is to you watching it from afar and so in order to make it clear to them, I think you need to give them specific examples of unacceptable behavior. And I would just call it out and say, yeah, look, if you did this once, twice, maybe even three times over two years, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Everyone has conflicts occasionally, but you've done it 25 times. And here I've been making notes, <laughs> you know, so I, I think you probably need to start writing this stuff down so that you can point it out clearly to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call out. When you're delivering tough feedback about things that need to change the vaguer it is the harder it is to receive and act on for folks yes yes yeah i like that i like calling it out explicitly and saying that hey it's not the individual things it's that there's this constant pattern that happens right and what's what's going on here i think is that this pair of developers is creating externalities where they don't feel it as badly as the rest of the team they don't feel the productivity lost from the rest of the team. They don't feel the unsafety that they've created for the rest of the team. 
you know, like the fact that other people on the team don't feel like they can engage in a healthy debate because they don't have psychological safety when they've got these two running around. Yeah. Like who's to who's to say that the wrath of this one developer might not turn to you if you disagree with them, right? Yeah. And so you, I think as a tech lead, one thing you can do is you can help them to take the externalities back onto themselves by pointing out things that are happening on the rest of the team as a result of their behavior. And this might force them into an introspective attitude where they say, oh, I didn't even realize that these debates that I thought were just perfectly normal debates were actually causing the rest of the team to disengage. Yeah. You did talk about kind of avoiding talking through feelings. And I I want to return to that because I want to agree with it basically that it can be tempting sometimes to be an armchair psychologist and think through like maybe Alice is feeling pressure because there's this new, young, eager person learning stuff quickly and Alice doesn't learn stuff as quickly. That's what the question said. And so they're kind of reacting defensively and trying to defend. Like it doesn't, I mean, it matters to them as a human. It does not matter to the team why they're doing it. Like mm. it's it's the effect of their actions that you want to focus on, not um, trying to kind of, treat them with therapy yeah <laughs> tell me about your childhood yeah exactly <laughs> tell me are you feeling the icy hand of death approach as you see these new <laughs> young developers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that can be a strategy once you have kind of agreement to work through a thing but if you're just trying to lay out what's acceptable and what the expectations are you don't want to dive into the why they're acting like that as much i think i, th I thought you were going to say that can be a strategy once you've completed your psychology phd oh yeah that too yeah <laughs> I don't know. I've I've read a couple. I read Drive, which is by a psychologist. So <laughs> I think that gives me all I need. Also, again, you are a computer scientist. So, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> don't underestimate your psychological abilities. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Like in the last 10 years, it feels like developers kind of got obsessed with psychology because they're like, oh, this is how people work. And it's just... <laughs> it's, it's like this set of instructions, just like computers have instructions. And I just learned right. the truth. And yep. la, 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 there's no such thing as a replication crisis. La, 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 la. <laughs> yeah. There's just this weird obsession with like pop psychology among developers, I feel like. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, a tangent. Be gone, tangent. All of this is to say, though, that even though we, Jameson and I are both believe in empathy, that it's crucially important as a leader to be empathetic with your people, we still don't, I think in this case, you need to put the responsibility on the individuals to change this behavior. You know, they are professional adults and they have got to do it. Yeah, I think empathy comes in to you supporting them in changing, but not into you excusing the behavior. Yeah, very well. Oh, that was elegant. Oh, why, thank you, Dave. Now I just have to do it. That was like as good as an inductive proof. An elegant <laughs> inductive proof. I am, after all, a computer scientist. That's right. <laughs> Of course, the things I say are elegant. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> firing someone is like the ultimate stick, and it has a lot, it has a pretty big blast radius in terms of effect on the team. Mm -hmm. Do you really think this merits it? I know you said early on that either one or both of you would be gone if this doesn't get worked out. I think that as a manager, if you want to like kind of cool that down a little bit, you can say, I don't see how the two of you can remain on this team with this behavior any longer. And that opens up the possibility for an internal transfer. It opens up the possibility for role change or a team split or like a, a charter focus where you're not going to be working with this person. But, you know, I think the other person will read the message loud and clear. 
It's like, yeah, I, I do have in my back pocket the idea of terminating your employment, but I'm not reaching yeah. for it right now. Yeah. I mean, one more question is, is there something that Nathan could have done earlier? Like what's, say say they had a time machine, what's something mm-hmm. they could have done before? Just have the same conversation, but earlier? Oh, definitely. I mean, the fact that this has gone on for two years is going to make it a lot harder because now the manager who's supposed to have these hard conversations has to acknowledge, I failed to do this on time. Like part of the responsibility belongs to the manager, right? Yeah. It's a it's a horrible feeling to be delivering hard feedback and know like it's better late than never, but this should have happened earlier. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really sucky feeling. You can imagine you would have nipped this in the bud quicker. And and I think that Nathan will probably take this lesson back for future jobs and say, if I see this kind of behavior beginning, I know to have the conversation now because it's only going to get harder. Yeah. We've talked about this a while ago, but there is I mean there's a skill in working with people that you don't naturally get along with and you don't have to yeah. be friends with them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to want to hang out with them, but there should not be that many people that you just cannot collaborate with at all. Mm-hmm. If you're just like easily torpedoed by someone difficult, you're going to be torpedoed because there are difficult people yeah. all over the place. <laughs> yep. Well, did we answer it? Clearly. Question answered. <laughs> Easy peasy. Simply do the thing we said, problem will be solved. Yeah, this <laughs> With is a hard. computer science stamp of approval. Yeah, you're a scientist. You know the <laughs> truth, the objective truth. Yeah, this is the hard stuff. Interpersonal conflict like this is tricky. So I guess expect it to be tricky, but I think it is definitely worth addressing. All right. Awesome. What should people do if they want their own questions answered, Dave? Go to softskills.audio and click ask a question. And we just want to say thank you to all of the many people who do that every week. We really appreciate all of your amazing questions. I think I learn a lot from the questions. Oh, yeah. Makes me think about the world in a different way. So thank you. All right. We'll catch you next week. 